All right. Questions from this morning or from the last week or two as we've been going through this text? Um, our microphones are, Matt, here's a mic for you, are standing by. One of the points was um, consider the shame of not finishing well. Yes, sir. Can you think of any stories, illustrations in the Bible of people not finishing well? Yes, sir. The first one who probably comes to my mind is Saul. Saul, um, God's spirit came upon him and he said, you will be a new man. And Saul um, started out so well, and he led a victory and against the Philistines, and yet through two successive failures, first he offered a sacrifice he's not offered, authorized to offer. You can go and read this in, in uh, First Samuel. Samuel tells him, I'll be back in seven days. Um, wait for me, and then we'll offer a sacrifice, then we'll go fight the Philistines. And seven days comes, and there's no Samuel, and... His army is getting itchy. People are starting to head home. So Saul offers the sacrifice, which as a king and not a priest, he's not authorized to offer. And pretty much as soon as he's done, Samuel shows up within the appointed time. And at that point, Saul loses the dynasty. And then when um, he goes to fight the Amalekites, and he's commanded explicitly, you're, you're, to not, you're not to take spoils. You're to devote it all to destruction. They save the best of the sheep. They save um, gold, enough for him to build a statue. And they save Agag the king as a spoil of war. And, and when Samuel comes and asks Saul what's going on, Samuel initially, Saul initially tries to make it sound pious. Uh, we wanted to offer to the Lord. Then he freely admits, yeah, I feared the people. And then he loses the kingdom. And then... Um, and even there, it's still salvageable. I mean, Saul, you're no longer to be king. There's no longer to be a dynasty. But then when he recognizes that David is anointed, because um, Samuel tells him the Lord will seek for himself a man after his own heart. doesn't tell him who it is. But in short order, Saul figures out that it's David. He begins to grow in jealousy, and you can just watch his descent into what can only be madness. Um, you remember, the whole reason he wants to kill David is to secure the throne for his son Jonathan. And yet at one point... He realizes Jonathan is actually supporting David and throws his spear at Jonathan. I mean, that's just insanity. The whole reason you're angry at David is you want the throne for your son, but you're trying to kill your son. And finally, you end up with Saul consulting the medium, the witch at Endor, um, where he... It's just a crazy syncretism. She says, you're Saul, and you're going to put me to death as a witch. And he says, no, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, you will not be punished for doing this. To invoke... Israel's God's name in promising her that she'd be fine and free and committing necromancy is just mind-boggling. And then he, you know, Samuel appears and says, Man, you're going to be dead. See you later, Saul. And so for someone starting so well, I mean, when David prays in Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, he's thinking of Saul. Because the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and then the, then the Holy Spirit departed Saul, and a harmful or evil spirit from the Lord came and tormented Saul. So there's at least one example. Demas is another example. I mean, that's just terrifying. Demas, it's so heartbreaking. He appears in Scripture. Demas sends greetings. I mean, he fooled Paul. Paul 
had him on his team. And we know Paul and Barnabas got in an argument over John Mark. So Paul had higher standards than, John, than Barnabas did over who he'd work with. And he travels with Paul, makes it into two epistles greetings, and then the last word, and, and you hear people talk about how agape is the, the Christian love. Demas agape to the world. That's what Paul says. Demas in love with the world has forsaken me. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, you guys, I'll throw it out to you guys. Other examples of people who seem to start well, not finishing well. Elsa, give us an example. Oh, you do too. Solomon. Except he does, I believe, finish well. He writes Song of Solomon. I mean, he writes Ecclesiastes. I Oh, I think you have to say he writes Ecclesiastes. I think you do. And even the prophecy given to David, when he sins, I will beat him with the stripes of men and with the rods of men, but I will not take my steadfast love from him like I did Saul. Seems to be a promise that, oh yeah, he's going to stray, and I will discipline him, but I will not ultimately cast him off. So, no, he, here's an example of one who strayed. I mean, here's an example of the mercy of God. And yet, I think at the end of his life, he writes uh, Ecclesiastes. I, I think from internally from Ecclesiastes, it has to be Solomon who's writing it. Um, so, no, I don't think he ends, ends outside the camp. I think he comes back. I mean, and there are examples of that, like Samson, right? I mean, Samson is a terrible, terrible, terrible leader. And yet, at the end, it comes together, and he prays, and... Lord, and he, you know, takes more men in his death than he does in his life. But okay, other bad examples. I'll give you one. Oh, Jeremy's got one. Jeremy, microphone for Jeremy. Well, I think Judas is a clear example. No, and that's frightening too. Judas was one of the 12 who went out and was given authority to cast out demons and cure disease. And remember, when Jesus said to his disciples, one of you is going to betray me, they don't all say, Judas, right? There was nothing about Judas that made him stand out. They're all questioning, is it I, is it I, is it I? Nothing Jesus did in treating him signaled him out differently. And yet Judas is the son of perdition. It'd be better for him not to have been born. Talk about a good start. And yet, finishing poorly. How's about the entire generation that left Egypt? That's the author of Hebrews makes that point. They have, and that's really kind of the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Doctrinally, the point of the book of Hebrews is Christ is better. That's the point. Christ's sacrifice is better. His priesthood is better. His covenant's better. His, his gifts are better. The application of that is persevere. So what the book of Hebrews does alternatingly is Christ is better. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than any created being. He's the covenant he mediates is better. But he keeps saying, in light of that, don't go back to the temple. Don't shrink back. Persevere. And in chapter, go to chapter 3. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, um, he uses the generation that left Israel as the example. And, and the point is this. There's a generation that left Israel left Israel, I just said, that left Egypt, that was saved from something but never to anything. They had what appeared to be a salvation-like experience. They were delivered from slavery. They were delivered from oppression. And they wandered around and died in the wilderness. And so the author of Hebrews uses them as his example. Don't be like them. It would appear as though you too, he's saying to his readers, have escaped something, have been delivered from something. And so we read, um, I, I quoted 
verse 14, but let's read it from 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So that's the danger, a slow, subtle drifting away. What's the cure? But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the seedfulness of sin. This is one of the reasons why we gather on, on the Lord's Day and why we need each other. Because we all have to encourage every one of us so that no one of us drifts away. I can't do this to myself. I need to be encouraged by you. You need to be encouraged by me. We need to be mutually encouraging each other. That's why perseverance is a community project. And then he cites an Old Testament example, Psalm 95. He's already quoted it extensively in verses 7 through 11. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And actually, look at verse 7 through 11 to make that point clear. Sorry. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to test, they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to that generation and said, they always go astray in my heart as they, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not Enter my rest. That sounds an awful lot like they will never taste my banquet. So Psalm 95 talks about that wilderness generation. And now the author of Hebrews is going to take that quotation from Psalm 95 and do an extended consideration of that generation. So look at verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And now, and this is one of those passages that, for me, is very helpful in linking faith and obedience. Because even though he cites all their sin, look at this conclusion in 19. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. What do you mean they didn't obey? You only talked about their rebellion. Well, we know they didn't believe, sorry, because they didn't obey. We know that they didn't believe God precisely because they grumbled. And it was their unbelief, evidence through their grumbling, evidence through their complaining, evidence through their unwillingness to, to take God of this word. Was They weren't unable to enter because of works. There's lack of faith, unbelief that stopped them from entering. But we see all the evidence of their unbelief through what they did. Therefore, verse chapter 4, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let's not make sure the same thing doesn't happen to us. You've had a salvation-like experience. You've, you testify to God delivering you. Make sure you get saved from something and to something. In other words, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they're not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter his rest. These are people who saw their dead sea, the Red Sea part, who saw Sinai quake and shake, and yet they went and worshipped a golden calf. And so there's, there's an example of people who started well and didn't finish so hot. Elsa, microphone. So I have a question. This generation he's talking about here, they are, these are the people that were left alive after the Levites went and slaughtered everybody because of the golden calf. Yes. 
Yes. The Levites basically killed, I think the number that's given, if we, we can go, someone will look it up in Exodus, how many died? 5,000? It wasn't that many. They basically, I think that the crowd, once they saw what was happening, made way for the Levites. <laughs> I mean, once you see somebody walking from one side of the camp, cutting people down as they go, you're going to give them some room. So it turned out that the entire tribe of Levi only ended up killing a couple thousand people. Um, out of the million or more of the Israelites. So it was, I mean, from a national sense, it was discipline, it was not destruction. Um, so yes, that, it was that generation. The real, the final test, the final provocation comes when they leave Sinai, because they get disciplined there for the golden calf. And then God takes them to Kadesh Barnea, and they send out the 12 spies, and 10 were bad and 2 were good. And they say, no, no, we won't go in. And they balk. I mean, God is destroyed Pharaoh's army. God, who's given them magic food in the wilderness. No. And God says, okay, fine. You don't want, my, you don't, you don't want to come to my banquet? You, you're locked outside. You're going to march around until you're dead. And then the, the terrible irony is they say, oh, no, no, we will, we will. And it's too late. And they try to go fight, and God isn't with them. And they get, they get smacked. And then they walk around. Now, even that's God's kindness, because God is giving them 40 years to repent, come to faith, and, and be saved in an eternal sense, although not one of them, except for Caleb and Joshua, is going to receive the temporal blessing here and now. Um, go. So we really today are in a similar position because we've been given so much light in the waste of God's salvation. Mm -hmm. And yet so many Christians don't repent. We is like, what do you mean by we? The church, America? Help me, help me out. The oh. Western world. I mean, you yes. can Bibles, sermons. Mm -hmm. There's just so much. The internet, and yet people still, we like the mm. guys 40 years in the desert. Yes. We're not listening. Right. A lot of the churches. No, we, I have more resources and books on my phone than... 99% of churches in church history. I mean, it's ridiculous. And uh, we, we have so much access to things. I mean, and even, but, the, but familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, you think of the letter to the Romans. The church in Rome has no apostolic foundation. It was founded by people who'd returned from um, Pentecost in Jerusalem. So it's a first-generation church, first-generation believers. How much scripture does Paul quote and assume they can track with him? What's he assuming about their understanding and their reading of the Old Testament? They don't have their own Bibles. Their, their, their synagogue or their community might have a Torah, and he's quoting it extensively, left, right, and center. And yet this is a first-generation church with no formal teacher, no apostle who founded it, like Paul would do, he'd teach them for months on end when he'd found a church. I mean, what they were, what he expected them to be capable of in a few months or years with what we have is just absolutely um, convicting. Or turn a little further in Hebrews to Hebrews 10. I mean, your point's made even better there by the author of Hebrews. Again, the argument from the lesser to the greater um, so the author of Hebrews, when he's giving his um, application, which is hold fast, will alternate between warnings and encouragement. So he gives an encouragement. Um, 
<clears throat> Sorry. He gives an encouragement in 10. Well, actually, let me go back even further because you've got to see the connecting thought in 18 and 26. So he's, he's giving extended teaching on the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice is better than anything the Levitical priesthood had because his sacrifice is once for all. Verse 12, when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And the priest didn't sit down, they kept working. Waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying, after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I'll remember their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18. I remember verse 18, because he's going to say this same thing again in 26 with a different point. Where there is forgiveness of sins, of these, there, no longer, there is no longer any offering for sin. So, when a once-for-all sacrifice is made, there's no longer any need for other sacrifices. And then he, based on that, gives the encouragement. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then we get three lettuce. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, we see gathering and encouraging is a key piece of us persevering. Then we get the stick. Four, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You can't go back to the temple and offer up a sin offering and straighten this out. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. Now here's the argument from the lesser to the greater, Elsa. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses like that guy they found gathering sticks on the Sabbath, right? No mercy. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? There's a Trinitarian offense right there. For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's entirely the argument from the lesser to the greater. If that was the punishment for setting aside, ignoring, sinning deliberately, resisting the old covenant, what's going to happen if you do the same thing with the new covenant? Um, yeah. Yeah. Al in the back. This is just uh, similar to some of the rest of them, but this is always a classic one that I always remember with Simon in, in the uh, book of Acts. By the way, is this mic really hot today? Or They're what? all seemingly really hot. <laughs> but, uh, Try talking into that. That's, that's the main thing, talking to the microphone. Should I bend this more to my face? This is the one that's, should I, I'm going to bend it in? It's supposed to be loud. 
Oh, okay. That's fine. I think, I think it's definitely loud. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Okay. Um, but anyway, in chapter 8, um, this is talking about Simon, but mm. uh, if you pick up in, in uh, well, you could go through the whole thing, but basically, chapter 12, but when they uh, believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of uh, Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike, and even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he uh, continued on with Philip, and as he observed uh, signs and great miracles taking place and was con uh, consistently amazed, constantly amazed. But the previous part of that chapter, Simon, some places called the sorcerer, he, anyway, he used to do a lot of magic tricks and he was amazing to people, but clearly it says he was, he believed and um, was baptized. Well, if you go down in the passage, you soon figure out that... 19. Uh, yeah, he may have, in fact, done that, but you find out that his faith is some different kind of faith. Um, <laughs> and uh, eventually he's pretty much uh, repudiated. Uh, yeah, verse 20, Peter yep. says, may your silver perish with you. So Peter thinks this guy's perishing. Right. And in the end, it really doesn't, I don't know if there's more uh, mention of him later. No, we, but, we don't, yeah. after Peter's rebuke, yep. he never shows up again. So we don't know what happens. Don't know, but from, from the way it's left, from, uh, from Peter's conversation and his uh, denunciation of him, you would certainly think that he never was a believer to start with. Okay. But he did some great things. He believed. Clearly says baptized. he believed. He was baptized. Yeah. He carried on with Philip. Um, yep. And then, come to find out, it, it wasn't real. Peter certainly doesn't think he's for real. Peter, yeah, in verse 22, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. So Peter doesn't think he's forgiven. You, you need to go deal with God and get forgiveness, Simon. Your money's perishing with you. So, I mean... Peter, I suppose, could be wrong, but two chapters earlier, he called out Ananias and Sapphira, so I would be hard-pressed to argue that Peter's, Luke wants us to think Peter's in error here. No, um, I think Peter rightly identifies this guy as some, yeah, there's faith and there's faith. We're saved by faith, but James, John, there's faith and there's faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. Go to Luke. I want to make an encouraging point in Luke. <laughs> Please go to Luke uh, 22. This, I didn't think I'd have time to fit this in the sermon, but um, I did intend to get it into the ABF. So in Luke 22, um, this just jumped out at me um, just a few days ago, and I found it very encouraging. Verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, there's a whole bunch of encouraging things here. For one, this is the work that Jesus is now doing in saving us. The New Testament talks of Jesus' priestly work as saving us, not paying for our sin, but causing us to persevere, causing us, to, shepherding us. He's, he, before the throne of God, I have a priest, right? That's Hebrews. So Jesus is interceding on Peter's behalf. And what's he praying? That your faith won't fail. But even in praying that, he recognizes Peter will deny him when you've been restored. So with, with, here's what God, I clicked on. 
He's not praying that Peter wouldn't deny him. If that's the case, then Peter, Jesus' prayer is unanswered. And implicit in what Jesus says is, you will deny me. When you're restored, you don't need to be restored unless you mess up. So in Jesus' mind, the failure of faith that he has in mind is not the denial. It's what happens after that. Will Peter, like Judas, wash his hands of it, give up, go home, hang himself? No, I'm praying that your faith will not fail. And after you're restored, strengthen your brethren. Faith only fails ultimately when it doesn't get up, repent, and keep following Christ. So when Jesus says we've got to make it to the end, he's not, there's room in that for things like Peter's denial. It just means that for those who are his sheep, we're going to get up, we're going to see what we've done, we're going to, we're going to weep bitter tears like Peter wept, and we're going to confess, and we're going to keep following Jesus. I just found that incredibly encouraging because whatever, I mean, it's a failure of faith in a sense, but Peter's faith itself did not fail there because he got back up and kept following Jesus. And so Jesus saying, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter's faith ultimately doesn't fail. It falters when he denies Jesus, absolutely. But what, what Jesus is calling for in us making it to the end is not that we're sinless, and it's not even that we won't at times egregiously sin, but it's that we keep getting up, confessing, coming back into the light, saying, Dad, I screwed up, please forgive me, and going on. And God can take people like that and write letters of the New Testament with them. So I just, I found that incredibly encouraging that as, as, as hard as the demands are, there is no expectation by Jesus that we're never going to stumble, we're never going to mess up, we're never going to make terrible mistakes. There's all sorts of room and grace for that, but we keep persevering on when he, when he shepherds us. The problem is when the person messes up or the person gets tough and just says, I'm done, I'm going home. That's, that's where it gets tough. Did you? No, you're not raising your hand here. Sorry. I saw it in the peripheral vision, so I wasn't sure. Okay, okay. Other thoughts or questions on this? We've got 15 minutes. Steve. I don't know if you noticed, but um, we chose shirts where we're foils today. And something just seems wrong about Satan demanding permission to sort you, sift you, get rid of the chaff from the wheat. Um, I did just the opposite thing when you were praying for peace. And how can we ask for peace instead of asking for God's will? That is a good question. The first part I'll say is this. I don't understand the angelic world very well. Every time I get insights into it, I'm confused. So you go to Job, and there's God having a conversation with Satan. What? And then Satan requests permission to assault Job, and God grants it. What? Then Daniel prays for an interpretation to his vision. An angel is sent the very moment he prays, but the prince of the power of Persia gets in a wrestling match with him and detains him for a month. What? All that to say, I don't know why Satan gets permission to ask, to demand to sort Peter. I don't know why Jesus or God or whoever he asked said yes if 
I were Peter, I would have said, and you said no, right, Lord? <laughs> and I, so the, I will freely grant ignorance as to how these things work. Because every time I get to peek behind the curtain and what angels are up to, I'm going, what? Okay. So that's the first bit. Your second bit then, it, and, and Steve and I have been chatting inside and outside of the ABF, it gets to something we were talking about earlier, which is um, within God, now I'll try to do this. Oh, good grief, we've got 10 minutes. Okay. Um, God has what, what, you can speak of this, and people talk about this a number of different ways, his revealed will and his um, sovereign will. You can, you can frame those in different ways. His, there is what God says he would like to happen, and there are clearly times where God speaks that way. There's undeniably that times when God speaks about what he'd like to happen but won't happen. Jesus, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that stones the prophets, how often I would gather up your children like a hen gathers her brood and you were not willing. I wanted this and it didn't happen, right? And you can think of a number of passages like that. Do I have any desire that the wicked should perish but rather that he should repent? Ezekiel 18. So God can speak of unfulfilled desire. I want X, I desire X, he may or may not get X, right? And yet there are clearly other times where God speaks of what will happen. I will raise up Babylon and they will judge you. And there's no, and maybe that'll happen in it. So God can speak at times of what he wants, but may not happen, and what will in fact happen. And so in trying to deal with those at least two different ways of speaking, um, theologians come up with different terms. For the sake of our conversation right now, I'll talk about God's sovereign will and God's will of desire. Okay, You could call them different things. Different people have called them different things. By sovereign will, I mean when God says, this is what's going to happen, and that's what's going to happen. Um, I call a bird from afar, I raise up a king, I cast him down, I will strike, you know, whatever. Prophetic language, sovereign, will of desire, here's what I want, and it may or may not happen. There's no way to avoid recognizing God speaks in both ways. Now, we are told to pray according to God's will of desire. That's how we're told to pray, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when Jesus prays us, teaches us to pray that way, he certainly does not mean pray that God's sovereign will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because it's always done on earth as in heaven. There is no disjunct in God's sovereign will. It has to be will of desire. I'm praying, Lord, those things that you said you desire, I want them to happen. Okay? So I know that in praying that, I may well be praying against things God has sovereignly decreed will in fact happen. Is that, okay, let me say that again. I may be praying for things that God says are good. I'm praying for salvation of people. I'm praying for peace. I think God says peace is good. Pray for peace. First Peter 4, pray for rulers and, and all th- rulers and authority that might live in peaceable, quiet lives. Now, world history makes it clear that doesn't always happen. Um, but I'm pray for it. And yet I pray... And this is, this, is, this is how you factor this in. Like Jesus, I'd like to not suffer at the cross, if at all possible, yet not my will but yours be done. James 4, I'm going to go here and do this, if God permits. So Lord, we pray for peace. If you've got other plans, do that. Here's what we want. So I don't have to worry about 
what if this thing that I think is good, that Scripture reveals is good, isn't what God has ordained for today? God says, don't worry about that. You just pray for what you want. Ask me for what you want. And then I need to do it in a way that recognizes, but if I don't get what I ask for, it's not because God was being capricious or a jerk that day, but he is wiser than me and he has better plans than me. So I laid his feet our requests, and there's never any, no dummy, I declared war today. Like he did when he raised up Nebuchadnezzar to destroy and sack Babylon. Right? I mean, you, whether or not you want, whether or not you're sold on God sovereign over everything, let's just take ones just clearly. He, he raised up Nebuchadnezzar, he brought Nebuchadnezzar. Yet the Psalms say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I don't think an Israelite's sinning when they pray for the peace of Israel, Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar's around the edges. They're just not going to get it. Um, so, I don't, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us and to our children. And God is mostly, aside from when he's speaking prophetically and apocalyptically, where he's telling us what will happen, and there are plenty of passages like that, book of Revelation, has largely spoken about what he wants from us. He wants us to speak the truth to each other. He wants us to love one another. He wants us to be one. Jesus prays, Lord, that they may be one. So I got all this stuff that God wants of me, God, God calls me to do. And I am to be busy about that and, and let God be busy about his secret will. But there are still even places in the Bible where it becomes clear. I mean, look, if you're still in Hebrews, go to Hebrews 6. There's, again, all these little things that jump out that you, know, you can go right over. And somehow... The New Testament authors, and I, and I know this is tough because we, we like to have things neatly parsed out. Um, it's not like they're blind to this, is I guess my point I want you to say. I want you to get the New Testament somehow, their authors are working with an understanding of the sovereignty of God and their understanding of our responsibility. So um, six, Hebrews 6, 1 to 3. Therefore, to let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation for repentance from dead works, faith towards God, and have instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Let us, Christians, press on and grow in the faith and become mature. What's verse 3 say? This we will do if God permits. Which, of course, at least in some sense, raises the question, you mean God might not permit a body of believers to mature? <laughs> Apparently, that's a, that's a conceptual possibility at the very least. And so I'm just, it's not as though the New Testament's unaware of this. It's not as though when we see this tension, the naive New Testament writers never saw this. No, they're fully aware of it, and they're fine with it, and they're talking fine with it. And so the challenge for me then is to get their mindset where they can talk in this way, or so he can urge and urge and plead with and warn and hurry. Don't be careful, Hebrews. Be careful. You don't do what happened to them. And this will do if God permits. Well, if it's all up to God, then why are you urging them and warning them and like, tweaking out there, author of Hebrews? I mean, if it's all up to God. And we, I get the logic. We see that. That's not the way he's putting these, these things together. And it's not because he doesn't see them. He sees them in a way that they don't conflict. So yes, yes, of course, this body of believers 
pressing on to maturity. They're um, ultimately persevering and not falling away. Depends on God's grace. And it depends on him warning them, guys, wake up, press on, press on, hold fast, don't shrink away. And in the same letter, he's talking both ways. And so um, D.A. Carson puts it this way. We want to make the currency, we want to spend the chips or make the points or draw the implications from these truths that the Bible draws from them. The Bible never, never, never takes the sovereignty of God and uses it in a way to undermine, negate, or minimize human responsibility. As if, don't worry, don't try, don't care what you choose. God's sovereign will work out. Never does it work that way. And so we ought to not do that either. What we get is... In calamity and terrible situations, we can trust that God has a plan to know what he's doing. And here, the author of Hebrews is able to say, press on, press on, don't, don't drift away, press on, and this will do if God permits. And I just go, okay. <laughs> That's apparently the way it works. Another example of, of that sort of that dual causing there. And so, um, Steve, I, I get the tension. I'm encouraged that the New Testament authors see it as well. I'd be a lot more discouraged if it looks like they naively were unaware of the tension. They get it. He, he just made that awkward statement in verse 3. In his mind, that's not a problem. So I go, okay. And I go on. But I, I get it. So to summarize, we pray according to God's revealed will. And, and along those lines, we're praying for peace. We're praying for healing. We're praying for the salvation of the lost. We are praying for um, the restraint of sin in the world. We're praying for the restraint of the curse in the world. We're praying for all of those things. And we're saying, like Jesus, but not our will but yours be done. And we, we, that's the way we live. And God does not ever require us to know the secret things. Like, no, dummy, that's not what I was ordained for today. We, we bring him our requests, and we, and we lay him at his feet, and we say, this is what seems good to us. I mean, so earlier today, we're praying for um, Anna's mother. We're praying for her salvation. I don't know what God has ordained. I don't know what God knows is best. But if we're off, and that's not what he's planned or ordained, he's not going to rebuke us for that. On the other hand, we, we don't get to say, we asked for this, and you didn't give it, so you're bad. We have to say we trust. And so we ask for Anna's mother's healing. We ask for Anna's mother's salvation. And we trust that God will do what is good. Um, and, and that's where we live. That's the only way I know how to, how to meter these things out. So our time is up. We can talk some more later, but um, we will pick this up next week. The good news is we're through the rough passage for now. And next week um, we'll be looking at heaven's joy. And, and for those who do receive Jesus' message, for those who do, who do not choke on it, there is so much joy and blessedness in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. So I will see you all next week. God bless.